Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello, my name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future to help them do more resilient strategic planning and anticipate risk. And welcome to the next episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm hugely excited, slightly nervous, but very vigorated to have this uh, conversation with my uh, guest today, and that's Dr. Joseph Varos. Uh, Joseph is a scanner, analyst, researcher, educator, facilitator, and consultant. He's been a professional futurist for over two decades. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics, and in his early career, he spent several years in internet-related companies, including a stint at the, the legendary Netscape in Silicon Valley, California in the late 90s. Joseph has a strong belief in the need for both rigorous intellectual discipline as well as practical pragmatic utility in real-world contexts, and this belief lies at the heart of his approach to future studies and strategic foresight. Uh, Joseph's work is hugely uh, inspirational to me and uh, many uh, foresight practitioners around the world. Uh, You know, he's helped evolve models like the Futures Cone and simplify approaches to foresight whilst being provocative and engaging. And I've been watching a a number of videos before having this conversation. And uh, his blog, The Voroscope, is well worth tuning into. Started in 2001, lots of information in there, and he's sort of going back through and taking a look at the content there. And Joseph, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. And you're down in Melbourne, Australia, so there's a big time difference here. It's already tomorrow. It's already the future where you are. So that's that seems uh, quite relevant to this conversation. But as we I do, must tell you that tomorrow looks very much like today. Yeah, exactly. The pandemic still exists, and uh, we're, we're stuck. <laughs> so uh, what I what I always do as part of these talks is just just get you to take us a little bit through the trajectory of your career, obviously from uh, you know from academia into Silicon Valley and beyond. Okay, well, yeah, so it goes back to basically the the Paleolithic of the the internet. Um, you know, um, so I did just you know I, I did physics. That was my my first love and. Um, you know, worked on, essentially got interested in Einstein's unified field theory, which is literally the last thing he did. And he literally was working on that when he died in bed in hospital. So that was, he was trying to, you know, so it was kind of a romantic um, connection to that. Uh, but there's not, not a lot of jobs uh, available. So, but, but being involved in theoretical physics, of course, I knew about CERN and I knew about this thing called World Wide Web. That had come out. I wrote a paper with a, a fellow student, actually, as we still were then, back in '94, Electronic Resource Guide for Physicists. It was for the industry magazine, and our code name was bigger, bigger than bread. We we knew that the web was going to be not just bigger than sliced bread, but bread itself. And so we wrote it in February, submitted it in March, and by April it was published and out of date. So that was a kind of a measure of you know internet time. And so 
you know, eventually I, I finished the, the PhD and I went out and started doing various training things and ended up, you know, various companies, you know, uh, selling selling computer stuff. But because I I knew what the internet was, I was doing competency-based training on how to use the internet back in 95, writing manuals for it. And eventually ended up, you know, having been fired from one startup, I had met some folks at Netscape Melbourne office and went in for an interview, got called back for a second interview. This is a sort of gives you a sense of the culture of the place. I was interviewed. Second interview was at the end of year barbecue. I'm sitting there with a Kubra, you know, sunglasses. This is 23rd of December. You know, hamburger, champagne, talking to the guy who's going to be my boss. I got offered a job the following week, started on the 6th of January, 97. Uh, and by the Saturday of that week, I was in Silicon Valley um, for, a, for a few weeks, you know, do some, some stuff. Now, of course, if you've ever watched Valley of the Boom, you know that at the end of episode four, beginning of episode five, hundreds of people get fired. I was one of them. Right. So the app placement consulting that, that we scored as a result of that, hey, Joel, you've you've qualified for a portfolio of outplacement consulting services. It's like, oh, that's, that's American corporate speak for you're fired. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you sit with the consultant, you do all the stuff, you see, you know, what are you interested in? You know, what would get, make you leap out of bed? The future, that's it. I want to be a futurist. And so I started networking and I, you know, ended up talking to people and they said, you've got to talk to Richard Slaughter and somebody else said, you've got to talk to Richard Slaughter and somebody else said, you've got to talk to Richard Slaughter and say, okay, so that's that's three pings. That's the Goldfinger principle in, in yeah. the scanning heuristic. Um, so I did, I rang him up. You know, I hear a futurist, I want to be one, what do I do? And I didn't know you can't do things like that to people. Um, but he said, look, well, let's meet for coffee. And so, you know, I, I bought the knowledge base. I read that cover to cover. Then a couple of years later, he was setting up the Foresight Institute at Swinburne. He called me in to see if there was some sort of contract we could work on. I went in for a, essentially a couple of months at the start of 2000. And um, I heard there was a job going there in the Foresight and Planning Unit. Marie Conway was the, the boss of that. Um, and if, if, you know, I got hired. I got hired in sort of August 2000. And as a foresight analyst, a strategic foresight analyst working in the office of the vice chancellor. Wow. And at the same time, Richard was setting up the Master of Strategic Foresight at the Australian Foresight Institute, which was two buildings down the road from where I was. And he said, come and sit in. You're doing this. You're building your practice. Come and talk about how you're doing this. And so that's how I got, you know, that's how I found myself sitting on day one in the first ever class of the master's program with Peter Hayward, who later became my co-conspirator in this, um, and eventually ended up being the last academic, teaching the last class at the end of 2018. Yeah. So from day one to day last, uh, involved in the master's and just... You know, absolute blast of a time. Yeah, it's the curiosity and gravity that drags us into this field. And it's interesting that you actually bring up Richard Slaughter. I didn't know that part of the story. But, you know, I, I've got sort of this uh, predilection to focus in on, you know, thinking about dystopia. And Richard Richard Slaughter, you know, was writing about, you know, futures beyond dystopia and whatever. In exactly. fact, 
when I was uh, sort of researching and selling through the idea of the book that I'm writing, which is looking at dystopic planning, the only person I could find that was absolutely writing about specifically that was Richard, right? So, so that's that's super interesting as well. And and yes, work- he was writing that just just at the end of his time at the AFI because he retired right. in the middle of two thousand and four, and so he was writing Futures Beyond Dystopia. Uh, at that point, he was compiling together various papers, but you know there was a lot of stuff that that was trying to to move beyond the techno optimism that is endemic in a yeah. lot of sort of futurism. And I use the the term as Richard uses it for the sort of the very shallow pop level stuff. Right. Yeah. And and you know what? It's, it's interesting. You know, I, I came from a world where I started doing conferences on human computer interaction. I did applied psychology computing. I did artificial intelligence, linguistics, organizational psychology. And I sort of ended up in advertising in Canada after being sort of a, you know, uh, building out data infrastructure for years. And, and then, you know, someone started calling me a futurist and I was like, what? And I'd sort of fallen into it. But I, I very much, I think, started off with futurism in a way and that very sort of shallow. And over the last sort of, you know, eight or nine years, got deeper and deeper, ran more events, given lots of people a platform for having discussions and sort of muddled my way through to where I am today, which is, a, you know, a jobbing futurist, a jobbing foresight practitioner as well. But I mean, where, where do you think we are today with the discipline of foresight? It seems like there's lots of pop futurists, techno optimists, you know, tech futurists, you know, the, the Peter Diamandis and the, the, the 10x sort of, uh, you know, once you've seen him speak once, then you don't need to see him speak again because he'll give the same talk 500 times in his career sort of thing about abundance. And then you've got the people that sort of go deeper down into academia like yourself and also the people that are down in, you know, climate futures or or whatever. So, I mean, where do you think we are today? I mean, you've taught a, a huge amount of people um, through your courses at Swinburne. You know, do, are you seeing some sort of trends emerge from that in terms of, you know, what these people are doing? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the Swinburne course was specifically designed not around teaching content yeah. as such, because we distinguish even even back in the, the foresight and planning unit with Marie, who um, eventually became my PhD student, by the way, and she she finished just literally a few months ago. She's now Dr. Conway. So yeah. you should read her, her PhD because it's excellent. Sure. Like <laughs> I watched it take shape. So, you know, do, do read it. Um, but one of the things that we recognised even then was that you need to distinguish, and this, this goes back to Andy Hines' work sort of in his column in the journal Foresight called Hindsight, of course, because yeah. it, was, it was the end of the end of each issue was Hindsight. And he, he talked about futurists as the facilitator versus the expert. Right. And so, in other words, process versus content. And so what we focused on, even back in, in FPU, back in you know the old days when I was organizationally based as doing the doing as opposed to teaching how to do it, you know, informed by that practice. Um, a lot of people focus on the content. And so I, I you know, regularly get asked, you know, what's gonna be the future of this? And we, we didn't teach future of stuff right, right. in the masters. We taught how to think about the future. How do you how do you tap the expertise of the people in the room, you know, 
know, put yourself as the facilitator of that conversation. And you might have some content expertise, but I think what's happening these days is that people become informed about a particular small slice of the human experience. They look at that or the future of that, and they so they become a, a future of X expert, whether it's, you know, the, the current um, the current fashion is AI right. um, or information. Um, and it's fairly typically a kind of techno-optimist view, the, the unalloyed good that is, you know, big data. Um, but interesting enough, I mean, you know, the last uh, formal bit of presentation I did at Swinburne before, you know, things went to hell in a handbasket, was actually the, um, the talk I gave about surveillance capitalism and, and proposing a research project called Going Dim, because, of course, it's almost impossible to go dark these days. And yeah. so the idea there is how do you minimise precisely the sort of, you know, corporate or data surveillance that you were talking about at your Google talk a, a few years ago, you know, it's, as I, as I said, before we went live, it's, you know, pretty gutsy walking into the belly of the beast and talking about how creepy their business model is. Well, th this is this is what people want. I mean, I, I did a talk uh, yesterday. And at the end, uh, and, and, you know, there was a lot of content, the future of a lot of different areas. Because I mean, so, someone I think it was Christopher Rice on, on Twitter said, you know, you've got to play the hits <laughs> as well as talking about sort of like you know the theory of music as well, right? Yes. So, and what I've actually done over the past uh, couple of years is is I've actually slipped in like foresight, foresight theory at the end of every presentation, and now people are really waking up. It, I mean, it's it's resulted in business for myself and for people that I work with. But it's also like, oh, I never considered that. And I used to be polarized and say, okay, this is this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen with climate and with energy and whatever. And, you know, I'd be, you know, in the oil fields of Canada and they'd be ready oh, yes. to like skewer me, right? So, yeah, going into the belly of the beat, I think that that's part of what we have to do is yeah. you know, de deliver the truth. You know, yeah. the, the, the change is coming and you either change or change is going to happen to you. Well, look, I, I remember years ago um, when the AFI was still running because it was shut down in 2005 after Richard retired. It sort of went on for another year or so. I was sort of the interim acting director until such time as there was going to be a new professor appointed. There never was. That was a fairly strong signal, that one. Um, but Zia Sadar, who was the ed editor of Futures in those days, uh, you know, classic um, uh, walking antithesis generator, we used to joke because, you know, you have a thesis, he'd come up with an antithesis because he came from a school of thinking that says it takes steel to sharpen steel. And so he wanted the clash. He wanted the clash of ideas. And, of course, he wrote a book called Why Do People Hate America? in the wake of September the 11th. Yeah. And he went to the Voice of America to do an interview in the State Department in Washington. He literally walked into the belly of the beast right. and tried to speak truth to power. And you can, you know, and then that, that was pretty gutsy effort, I thought. And so there is this sense that futurists have to speak truth to power. Right. Um, and that's becoming increasingly difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a, a lot of people... It, but, a lot of people are scared to do it, you know, and, and this is, 
you know, I've been fired from a number of jobs, mostly in the advertising industry, because, you know, you sit there in front of a board of directors of a company and you're like, I don't know who, who, who you're trying to, you know, make buy your product. I don't know. I worked with a, you know, a, a national tourism board. And it's like, there's a beer commercial that's doing a better job of selling Canada to the world than you are. What someone hadn't told me was that an intern in their department had given the rights to a really expensive photo shoot piece of footage to the beer company after they called up and said, can they use it? So I basically hit this, this raw nerve. But what was interesting was I got fired from my job about four months later due to being taken off the project, speaking the truth and speaking it very directly. Um, two years later, none of, none of the people in the board of directors, including the CEO, was there anymore. And they were following a strategy that I suggested on that day. So it's kind of interesting that, yeah. I mean, people don't want to recognize that, that, that these futures are likely to happen as well. So how do, how do, we, how do we persuade people that, you know, and you talk about preposterous futures when you when you talk about the the futures cone and you rift, you know, on on the evolution of the futures cone. Think about preposterous futures, which I talk about in pretty much uh, all of my talks. How do we how do we convince people to take to take us seriously when you know what we're delivering is news that could be pretty bad for them in their business, right? Well, exactly. I mean, look, <clears throat> the, the idea of the futures cone of, of preposterous futures was. Uh, and I started using the cone back in 2000 as an analyst in the, in the right. foresight and planning unit. It was essentially an educational tool because I found, you, you know, you see people's eyes glaze over when you start talking about certain types of futures. And so, right. okay, well, how do I, how do I short circuit that and name the dragon so that I have power over it, right? So I started to use the, the cone and the idea of possible futures, that's as, that's as, as wide as it went, you know, the, the, um, the foresight primer is on my blog. It's finally come home to its natural natural habitat after years of being out, you know. But that was written back in 2001. Right. And the early version of the cone then did not have preposterous futures, nor did it have the projected future. So those were kind of added really as a way of, of starting the conversation because, you know, if you've seen any of the, the videos of, of presenting that it starts off usually with the projected future people think that's the whole game then it expands to probable plausible possible preposterous and preferable futures are in there as well the idea of preposterous futures came when people were unwilling to admit to the idea that these things might happen right and that was because because possible futures was uh, Roy Amara's uh, famous thing about visionaries think about possible futures. Yeah. Analysts think about probable futures, and, and you know activists think about prefer preferable futures. So those that was you know the initial sort of three categories. Um, and preposterous came about because I was looking for a P. Right. Um, and I, I was digging through my old presentation slides around about sort of two, late two thousand and five, six, seven, that sort of time frame. It, it became clear to me that I needed some way of moving beyond that. You know, why is it that some people just stomp their feet saying, no, that's impossible. So it's impossible that will never happen as opposed to possible might happen. Right. Now, of course, most futurists that I know of at least read some science fiction when they were growing up. So Arthur C. Clarke has, you know, his, his famous book, um, you know, Profiles of the Future, 
talks about failures of imagination and, and failures of nerve. And so, you know, you're talking to Lewis Damhoff um, a, a few months ago. And yeah. so, of course, she talks about poverty of imagination. So there is this idea that um, a failure of imagination means that you, you can't even conceive of it. You, you won't allow it. And that combines with Jim Data's famous maxim. So Clark's second law is the way you find the limits of the possible is going beyond them into the impossible. Yeah. So that sort of leads to the idea of, well, if futures are impossible, they can't be possible. And that combines with Data's second law of the future. So there's two second laws there, uh, which is that any truly useful idea about the future should appear to be ridiculous. Right. And so those sort of gelled. So I call that the Clark Data discontinuity because people are happy to go out to possible and then their mind just goes... <laughs> can't can't deal with it no that's that's you know that's impossible and they get quite hit up so i use that as a as a prompt i say if you have this reaction because the futures cone doesn't talk about objective futures it talks about present moment judgments about ideas about the future yeah so if you have this reaction that means you found the limit of your thinking some assumption that you're holding has been crossed you don't necessarily know what it is, but it feels wrong. Therefore, that future is wrong. Right. And so that should be a prompt to say, well, all right, let's let's come back. And again, Lois talked about this, that, that you start to think about what are the assumptions that are at play here and do they still hold? And so preposterous futures, I think... I had to, had, it had to have a P and preposterous was the one that, used to, that people used to laugh at. Right. Okay, so that was that turned out to be the stickiest of the of the um, the various P's that I tried. It, it sounds so, almost it, it sounds almost medieval as a word as well, right? Forsooth, the preposterous futures. Forsooth, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, look, it, it, back in the foresight and planning unit, we had a Latin motto that that uh, only the vice chancellor really appreciated the irony of because he was a Latin scholar. Uh, but in Latin, it was, it's, you know, we're holding the future firmly in view, which, you know, the idea of a Latin motto for a foresight unit was, anyway, that was, that was just our bizarre sense of humour coming to the fore. Uh, but in the same way, it's like, you know, the idea of preposterous futures, it, it's, it's sticky. And so, therefore, it's useful. And so, um, but I've, I've often, and I've, I've been asked to come and talk at, at you know, various workshops or or what have you to explain the cone because right. principally it gives you permission to say things that your colleagues might laugh at. And so, you know, you bring the futurist in, the futurist gives you permission. So it really it opens a space for you to imagine. Um, so imagination is important because, you know, as, as Lewis pointed out the poverty of imagination means you don't think about many of the things that you probably should think about right but then you've got to rein that back in you know the tagline for the blog of course is prospect in the future using disciplined imagination so undisciplined imagination that's fine you need that but you've got to be able to pull that back into some sort of real world practical use you know, as you said in the intro yes you've got to be rigorous but it's got to be useful yeah. It's, it's by making it, by, by being um, more disciplined, thinking about the future in a systematic and disciplined way, that's not anathema to using imagination. It's right. open up, but if you can't ever bring it back to reality, 
then you're lost. I've seen science fiction authors talk to business uh, groups and within five minutes, they're colonizing, you know, star systems and the, and you just see the eyes glaze over. I mean, you, you know this from your own practice, <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. You look for the naughty factor in the room, how many eyes are glazing over, who's fidgeting. Yeah. You know, now, of course, it's much harder because people have got mobile phones all the time. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of preposterous futures is important because it, it means it's a signal to you that one of your assumptions has been crossed. And right. that's the point. Yeah. What is the assumption? Interrogate that. And as, um, as Willis Harmon put it way back in the, in the 70s in his Incomplete Guide to the Future, um, the job of futures research is to make those assumptions explicit so that you can see whether they continue to hold. And if they don't, well, let's figure this out. What are the consequences of working with an assumption base that no longer maps to the reality that we're supposed to be trying to cope with? Yeah. And that, I think, is the, is the danger. Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting, and I I think it's great that you're sort of uh, referring back to Los. I, I met Los in, uh, in as part of a United Nations uh, piece of work some, a couple of years ago in South Korea, and so awesome. I like stayed in touch, and we're we're such good friends, and I, I really really love her a lot. But when are we talking about these visceral reactions, like these reactions to what we say? I mean, I've got an, I've got an example that that it really stands out to me as we talk. I was I was speaking uh, uh, the Institute of Public Ad Administration of Canada and they're they're an organisation outside of government that brings government in to have conversations and I did a thirty minute presentation on you know the future of everything from you know artificial intelligence machine learning the implications of that on business or on jobs on self driving vehicle whatever anyway and I really really went in hard in terms of you know, anticipatory sort of policy and doing predictive sort of thinking around, you know, what's going to happen and, and how, you know, these technology companies come in and they colonize the world like, like Uber and whatever and they take over. And a woman came up to me afterward and she was a policy analyst and she was shaking. And I was like, are you okay? And she was like, I, I'm scared. I'm really scared about everything that you said. And, and she, you know, after about five minutes, you know, we sort of, you know, she sort of calmed down and we were chatting. And it's like, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of optimism and whatever. Anyway, I turned and a young, a young girl came up to me, or a young woman came up to me, I should say. And she was like, thank you. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, thanks very much. And she goes, I can't work here anymore. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And, and so she was, she, was a, she was a policy analyst, a junior policy analyst. She was like, yeah, this this place is kind of screwed. And she wasn't talking about IPAC, which are great clients of mine, but in the government department she's working, it's like, everyone's moving too slowly. They're, they're not re they don't really get it. And uh, you sort of jolted me to do something differently. I was like, okay, uh, great. Anyway, six months later, I was at the University of Waterloo and I worked with them on their innovation conference. And the girl came up to me again. I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a Forbes uh, journalist called uh, John Kurtzier. And uh, she was like, hey, Nick. I was like, oh, hey, great to see you again. She goes, yeah, I quit. And now I'm doing my master's in technical entrepreneurship. And it's like, there you go. That's, that, that gives me hope <laughs> in terms of people taking action based on what they learn about what a future state could be and then choosing yeah. to be part of that future as well. And I think that that's, that's really important. And I think the preposterous, you know, those edges, you know, the bulging edges of, of those ideas of the future uh, are, are hugely important. I mean, there's something else that I want to um, just feed into the conversation. 
you know, you talk about big history as well. And I, I'm a great believer that we've got to look back to understand how we can look forward. I mean, I just go back to the late 1700s, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's easy to sometimes I go back to Al Jazari in the 12th century to talk about, you know, what he was doing with automata. And so you can go back to the city of Uruk or whatever. Right. Uh, but, you know, can you explain how, you know, what big history is and how you use that in the practice? Uh, well, big history is is uh, a, a term coined by David Christian. He's a professor at um, Macquarie University in Sydney, um, and he was asked to teach a, a course on world history uh, way back in the the late seventies. I think I think seventy nine was when he started teaching it, or maybe it's eighty nine, something like that. No, I think seventy nine. Anyway, he was. You know, he, he said, well, when, when he, used to, he asked his colleagues, well, where does history start? And they said, well, you know, 5,000 years ago. Well, well that's when the written records are. Right. He said, but, but there were people before that. You know, there was, there were, you know, there were villages before that, before written, before writing was invented. Right. And before agriculture, there were people. And before people, there were animals. Before animals, there was the earth. And so he realised that if you keep going back, you hit the ultimate stopping point, which is the Big Bang. Right. And so big history is history taught from the Big Bang. Obviously, if it starts the Big Bang, it's got to be big history. Right. And again, it was one of those those sticky terms. Um, now, I, I had been exposed to this since very early on as a as a, you know, as a teenager. You know, Carl Sagan's series Cosmos right. was essentially big history or cosmic evolution, as, as physicists and astronomers call it. But um, David framed it in terms of how to understand this from a from a sort of at the conceptual level rather than the detailed mathematical level. So it was intended for, you know, humanities students. How do they get an idea of the major theories of, of science, Big Bang cosmology, stellar evolution, you know, the nebula, stellar nebula hypothesis, how did the earth form, plate tectonics, uh, evolution by natural selection, all the, you know, the major theories. And then how do you understand human history from that overview from a, as he calls it, a time and spaceship in orbit about the Earth. We don't study civilizations as such, but civilization, capital C, right. as a thing. And so the idea there is what are the, the themes that emerge? And essentially it's energy flows through matter. That's one way that you can understand that and the rise of complexity over time. And I um, mean, he's, he's I'm, I'm reading... The manuscript of his new book actually at the moment it's sitting here on my ipad um where he he basically takes a big history view of futures thinking most big historians think about the future because you can't just stop you know after a 14 billion right. year run-up you can't just stop today like there's some sort of inertia that carries you and as he tells the story the first time they taught big history the students came up and said why have we stopped today you know what's what's coming and so he's written sort of he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Origin Story, and now this is sort of, you know, I mean, I, it, there's no formal title yet. I mean, there's a working title, but I won't share it because it probably won't be the title it comes out with. But I'm sort of reading through that and, and offering some advice as a futurist, you know, with an interest in big history to an expert in big history with an interest in the future. And so there is this sort of, you know, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary view um, and he's taken this view of, well, how do, how do 
organisms do futures thinking. He's got microbes in there, nice. macrobes, you know, humans. How have we done it? He's got a, a brief history of future studies as a discipline in there. Uh, that's kind of where I'm up to at the moment. So, you know, big history provides this framework. And again, it's, you know, the, the, the paper on using big history as a scaffold for futures education. What we found was when we taught big history uh, to undergraduates, they found it much easier to get their heads into the space about futures thinking than before. You know, we kind of noticed as Peter and I were sat down one day and said, why did they, they kind of get it? Right. And it's essentially it's that. It's the, the 14 billion year run-up gives you a sense of deep time and to some degree of contingency. And so, you know, we just found that, that students grokked futures thinking much more easily having been exposed to literally the whole of the past at yeah. an overview level, at a sort of conceptual level. And it also gave them familiarity with understanding the main uh, processes of change. I mean, we, we look at climate change over hundreds of millions of years. Right. You know, we look at evolution over literally hundreds of or billions of years. You know, life is something like 3.8 to something like 4 billion years old on Earth, mostly microbes, but then, you know, you had the, the Cambrian explosion and we sort of life went multicellular. Um, and so that gives you a different perspective on things like the pandemic. Right. Because you learn that microbes will out-evolve us and the best of our science so if you want to get into a war with the microbes, you're going to lose. Yeah. And there's like so, se there's, there's there's like what seven million coronaviruses in nature. It, it's inevitable that this is going to happen again. And I've been delivering this this bad news to a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, uh, you know, no one saw this coming. Is what or this was a what a black swan event was was one of the biggest sort of calamitous sort of statements made when this was all going down. It's like stop saying that because. You know everything from like you know the black plague to the spanish flu to the hong kong flu to mers well to sars to mers the fact that a million people a year die from aids and we don't talk about that in pandemic terms as well is wild it's just really difficult to catch aids it's really difficult to catch hiv it's really you know so suddenly it, it's not our problem in a way as well it's interesting when well, we so think in big history we actually yeah. have a, a section uh, one of the questions that they can because they need to choose, at least in the course that I taught, um, they needed to choose one scientific theory. And the things that I wanted the students to do is what is the theory and what does it purport to explain? Right. What's the evidence base? Because I was trying to teach them to, to think in terms of evidence, like how yeah. far do you believe this? Um, what are the unanswered questions, the open problems or the, or the issues that remain? And how are the people who are working in those areas trying to deal with them. You know, ask those four questions. If you can do that, puts you ahead of 99% of the population rather than just taking things at their word. It's like, what is the theory? What is the evidence? What are the issues? How are they being dealt with? So that was the science part. The human part was choose, you know, one, one of the questions was how have, how has pandemic disease or how have diseases shaped human history? Right. And of course, you know, they would choose anything from essentially the smallpox that was taken to the new world as part of the Colombian exchange, you know, which makes it sound like it was an equitable arrangement. You know, <laughs> we'll take all the good stuff. You can have the disease and yeah. die, right? That was the exchange. Um, 
to the, the 1919 influenza pandemic, to smallpox and how that's been eradicated apart from two labs in the world that hold it. Yeah. And so, you know, so, so it would have been interesting to see how that question would have been dealt with last year had big history been taught last year, um, in, in, at least in my class, um, because it just changes the view. Um, so students who have taken that or have dealt with that as their subject would have had a much different view of the current pandemic. Right. I mean, you know, the Institute for the Future back in 2009 in their superstruct did, you know, essentially, or 2008, they, they did, you know, the, the was it called? It was called respiratory distress syndrome. It was the right. global pandemic starting in 2019. I mean, they actually, they ran the simulation and, and even came up with the conspiracy theories. So, you know, this it's the idea that this was, no one could have seen this coming is essentially a, a, a bit of fake cop-out, really. I mean, one of the one of the positive sort of knock-on effects I found. I mean, I'm really, really busy. A lot of people that work in foresight are really, really busy. You know, in the speaking world, chatting to agencies out there, certainly in North America, they're like futurists are the people that people want to talk to now. I think you know the people like uh, Yuval Noah Harari and Sapiens and the other books he's written, which was about pretty much big history, right? Is And now he's suddenly, at, you know, at the table of the World Economic Forum talking about surveillance capitalism, about bi biological data, you know, computing power, exposure, network and psychological effects. And everyone's like, oh, you know, and where are we going? You know, please tell us. And it's su suddenly awakened that curiosity, which is amazing. I, I sat down with a with a with an agrochemicals company yesterday and their clients and they wanted me to speak for 30 minutes on things that they didn't know and that was the only briefing i had because i was a last minute sort of replacement for someone and we spent you know, a lot there. yeah it, indeed <laughs> and it was, tell us what we don't know and it's like okay so you come out with the wild stuff right uh, you know everything from like future population movements the the explosion of of, of cities and population in africa and east asia what all this good stuff and, and you suddenly get get these people and they're getting into it, right? And they, they're talking about, you know, the future of military, um, a US military might. And, you know, then you talk about how it's not going to be tanks in the battlefield and it's going to be cyber warfare and it's not going to be America's dominance anymore because after Stuxnet, you've got Iran and, and what they've done in the cyber... And all these things. And suddenly you've got a room of people that are really animated and really starting to wonder and... And they, they had a long conversation, apparently, after, after I left the, uh, the, the, the conference room. There was only eight people in the room. And it was really, really good um, that these people were willing. And they do these conversations every two years. And they're just like, their brief is, just tell us things that you think that we don't know. And that's kind mm -hmm. of a fantastic brief in a way. I was scared witless like two days before because it's like, I need to know. Do they even want a presentation? They're like, you've got some slides, right? I'm like sure <laughs> so quickly bundled things together but when we're talking about the big history and then we're starting looking at today and we're sort of struggling with what is happening and then we start to look to the futures i mean people often say you know what 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 are things going to be like in five years and it's like um yeah. cindy fruin says you know that's just extended strategy 10 years is just extended strategy really go for it like go out like 50 100 and you know i i even like to think about a thousand years if you, if you ever stood in a city and thought about what's this place going to be like in a thousand years 
it's pretty wild. So what about the far futures thinking as well? Do you think that that's something that, that we're missing in the discipline of foresight right now? Um, I mean, there, there was a special issue of futures years ago called um, Humanity. Well, the, the, the Foundation for the Future in Seattle used to do the, you know, they had Humanity 3000 right. series of conferences um, and there were various things there. Uh, but I, I go back to what we used to teach at the in the Master of Strategic Foresight, which was that Richard identified three main levels of foresight implementation. And there were four levels of futures thinking, you know, pop, problem-oriented, critical, and epistemological, and sort of allied to those at the sort of, the, he talked about pragmatic foresight, which was essentially the Hamel and Prehalad stuff, you know, competing for the future, future competitive space, colonizing the future, if you will, right. in the business sense. So that's that's competing within industry. Then you had the progressive foresight, which was, you know, don't get better at the rules of the game, change the rules of the game. Right. So things like that were like sustainability, you had industrial ecology. I mean, I worked with Harden Tibbs on a project for Swinburne all those years ago. It was a, you know, amazing to sort of hang around in the same room as, as you know, the person who gave the presentation that, um, you know, inspired the ecology of commerce, Paul Hawkins' book. Apparently, right. he asked for a copy of Harden's Prezzo, watched it 50 times, wrote the ecology of commerce, and this kick-started industrial ecology back in the sort of the early 90s amazing and so you have that which is change the rules of the game yeah but then the deepest level is civilizational foresight and that's that's a different game that's not just you know that's reconceptualizing humanity or human experience you know what is what is right. it mean to be human and so that's the sort of stuff that we try to deal with in the foresight masters and that was you know, but, but people would often come into the course, and this, this goes back to your story about the people who come up to you and say, I can't work here anymore. When we had students come in wanting to operate at sort of the pragmatic level, we opened up their thinking to the critical and epistemological level stuff, the progressive and civilizational sort of levels of foresight. It's like, you know, and I liken it sometimes to the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons when the coyote looks down and realises there's no, there's no, you know, land, there's nothing underneath him, he's sort of hanging in midair. Students would have that sort of vertiginous feeling, OMG. Um, and some of them would say, that's it, I, I'm gonna quit my job. We used to say to them, don't make any major life decisions for at least six months. <laughs> right. But what they would do is they would be open up to the idea that there's more to foresight than the pragmatic stuff competing within industry. Right. Maybe you want to change the industry, maybe you want to reconceptualize human experience entirely. And so they would they would see that level of change or that level of thinking and then bring that back in form from a deeper level. One of our dear friends in the Foresight Institute in those days was Richard Neville, the late Richard Neville, who, um, you know, always appeared to be a pop futurist. He always be sort of court jester sort of thing, you know, he did the, the, the famous court case in the, in the 60s and 70s, you know, the... Um, the, so he was one of the, the, the editors of a magazine that was tried for obscenity. Um, but he, he was a critical level futurist disguised as a pop futurist. Right. So he would go in and do the court jester sort of stuff. And so the students would, a lot of them would, they would see the deeper stuff, 
and go back into their organizations informed from a deeper place, but trying to do the shift a little bit like the sort of the Trojan that you did with your Google talk. Right. Uh, so not overt, but sort of try to shift the shift the discussion informed from a deeper place. And about a third of the students would actually change careers by the time they'd finished the masters. So we, we found that um, to be fairly common, um, but we, we counseled against doing it, you know, oh my God, you know, they've done the first week of the course, that's it, I'm gonna quit my job. Don't do that, just see whether you can operate within that to begin with. Yeah. And so, um, so the, the, and big history ties into that because if you're looking at big history, you're looking at the, the major thresholds of change. And so I frame threshold nine, which is the next one in, in the, the sequence that David Christian talks about as really, you know, a, a time beyond fossil fuels, you know, what comes beyond or after fossil fueled right. civilization as Václav Smil uh, called it. So, but I'm not betting on what that is. There might be unlimited energy. Fusion might actually stop always being 40 years into the future, just at the end of, you know, the, the current the current generation's working lifetime. Yeah. Uh, it might actually be a thing. Uh, or we might end up having to go through the long descent, as uh, John Michael Greer uh, called it. So, you know, it was basically an exploration of you know, what, what comes beyond that and what does that mean? And more recently, of course, that's been framed in terms of Toynbee's model of, big his, of, of, of macro history, which is where the elites stop having or stop getting their legitimacy granted to them by the masses, and they start to become a dominating minority. Right. And you see this now with surveillance capitalism or surveillance everything, really. Uh, that's That was really, you know, the last talk I gave. Surveillance capitalism is an aspect of surveillance everything. You know, welcome to the surveillance scene. Um, you know, the era of surveillance, everything, and that includes everything from corporate, government, even philanthropists, you know, philanthropic surveillance is, is a thing in, in some places. We'll give you this money, but then they want to watch and see what you do. Right. Um, and so surveillance, everything is, is really a symptom of the elites trying to maintain their, their hold on power. And this, you know, this, 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 this explosive growth in data as it as it goes um, through time. Uh, I mean, I saw it a long time ago, and I was like, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to get into data as as a discipline, be a technical architect, build data." You know, back in the day, we, I was doing sort of. Now it seems quite rudimentary. Build a data warehouse, um, take a subset of data, run some, you know. You know, analytics and you know sort of regressive analytics on it um find the I'm not two sure i actually answered your question by the way but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay i mean you know, this this podcast is about about wandering around uh, i can't even remember what the question was actually joseph so it, it's one of those things but um but what what's really interesting about this is <clears throat> You know, from the far futures to the current state of, of foresight, and futures, yeah. yeah, the far futures. You know, um, actually telling a story. You know, I, I've started writing design fiction, um, so I generally root it in twenty one hundred or twenty two twenty or something like that, um, because it it makes people feel sort of warm and fuzzy because. You know, there can be sort of a, a positive uh, vibe to that, or it can be a negative vibe to that as well. And you know, when I when I start writing sort of dystopic futures, and I run a run a speaking event called Dark Futures, 
which is sort of the black mirror of TED Talks. And you get yeah. um, someone talking about the hidden systems in the world and people are like terrified. And it's like, this is around you all of the time. And, and why aren't we, why, why aren't we uh, awake to, to all of this stuff happening? There's always darkness. And why are we so afraid to look into it? And this is why I sort of, sort of latched onto the preposterous futures. Because in preposterous futures, there's a lot of darkness, right? <laughs> I think. And, well, and it's, 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 you know, the, the judgment of preposterous, that's never going to happen. That's impossible. Don't waste right. my time. Why are you wasting my time with this crap? That, that's a judgment that, you know, touches a nerve. And what, you know, the question is, what nerve has been touched and why is it so touchy? Right. And so, and typically, you know, again, you know, I, I, I worked in a Silicon Valley company and it was, you know, the unalloyed good of, of technology was just sort of taken for granted. But the critical approach that's, that asks questions about, well, is it an unalloyed good? No. Right. And, and you know, the, 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 the frequent... Um, conflation that goes along is that optimism is good and pessimism is bad but you need you need dystopic fiction to work out how things can go wrong right because if you're not prepared for things to go wrong when they do go wrong you're screwed right and i always come back to the 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 story about the um the meteorologist who had actually modeled a hurricane like katrina and had presented a year before it happened, had presented to you know the, the the city of New Orleans to the decision makers there, and said you know if there's a hurricane of this strength that comes in at this trajectory, then this many people are going to die because these dikes are, or these these levees are going to burst and and you know whatever. And I can remember an interview with him after it happened. He was crying like he was he was distraught because he said if only I'd pushed harder, but you know, the, a frequent refrain in our course was that some people would rather die than change their minds. Right. And I'm, I'm coming to the point now where I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I've written papers about alien civilizations and, and how do we think about contact and all that sort of stuff. And if you, if you go back to 2012, you'll see I gave a talk in Bosco um, at the, the Global Future 2045 Summit there um, and David Christian was there. That's where I actually met him in person for the first time. We'd corresponded before that, and he actually gave a talk about humanoids, you know, alien civilizations. Um, and you know, the, the I'm I'm starting to think now that that some civilizations would rather die than change their minds. Right. And so you know, I'm wondering now whether the Earth, you know, our civilization is going to be one of those are we actually a case study for you know the, the alpha centauri institute of human studies as they watch to see you know what's this this civilization going to do are we going to be you know like a like a, a harvard business school case study are we a success a turnaround right. or is this are we destined for the you know pardon me the shit heap of big history you know in terms of this is another promising civilization that's winked out because it put short-term self-interest over long-term survival. And I think that's actually, if we're talking long-term futures, that's how I frame this. I think in terms of on a big history time frame, most species last about 2 million years. That's, we, we know that from, from studying the fossil record. Um, so will we, I mean, you know, 
genus Homo has been around for about two million years, if you, uh, assuming you, you you agree with um, uh, Lewis Leakey's characterization of Homo habilis. Is that genus Homo, or is that actually something else? But you know, the 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 genus, sorry, the yeah, the genus that that we're a part of has been around for a couple of million years. That's right. pretty much the lifespan average on average of, of species. You know, are we going to be around? Um, and more to the point, are we serious about that? And that's why, you know, as, as if you've been watching online prezos, you know, I like to talk about um, that, that wonderful galaxy known as Hove's object that right. looks for all the world like it's been engineered. And as I said in one of those talks, uh, the Anthropocene conference actually about six years ago at, at Macquarie. I just watched that today, um, actually. <laughs> well, you know, I say to me that's kind of a, a bullseye in the sky that says, you know, humans, if you're serious about your future, you could do something like this. But are we serious, and will we do something like that? Don't know. So, I think that that you know our species faces an inflection point, which is. Do, are we really serious about survival? And, you know, that's an uncomfortable question. That kind of ask that question, the energy in the room drops. You know what it's like <laughs> when things, the energy just goes cold in the room. Right. And people stop breathing, you know, gasp. Um, but that's, I think that's the question that, that, you know, a big history futurist, someone who's interested in civilizational level of foresight needs to be asking. And it's deeply uncomfortable. You know, and as part of that is that that at, at what stage do we lose the ability to even think about alternatives? And so that's the issue of privacy. You know, you need private spaces to explore seditious ideas that you're not necessarily going to put into practice, but to explore the contours of that. You know, if we wanted to do this, then we need to do that. Is that the, the separate question is, is that a moral thing to do? No. But right. if you're going to be held to account for every thought you've ever had, whether it's moral or immoral, according to whatever the, the current judgment or the current framework of judgment is, then you're never going to be able to think about the sorts of ideas that need to be thought about if, as a species, we are serious about the long-term future. And, you know, I think that that's actually a really good point to sort of like put an underline to the, to this conversation for the for the podcast. And we could probably talk about this for about five or six hours. And uh, I imagine that I, we're going to have other conversations, Joseph. I'd love to sort of uh, chat to you some more. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the big history to what we're doing, foresight today, preposterous futures. And, and really something that, that has really sort of ignited a number of thoughts in my head around civilization level foresight and taking it seriously and you know what sucking the air out of the room sometimes is okay and you know if it's 2000 people at a conference so be it or if it's eight people in a room that are arguing about you know population booms um what that means in terms of growth of religion and will that mean more wars and you have to remind them that you know what it's just assholes that like wars. So we just have to stop being those kinds of people, heal the trauma of the I mean, world, you know? Just just before we, we finish up, I mean, because I've been reflecting, because of course, you know, the, the I became a COVID redundancy as part of the, right. you know, what happened last year. I've taken some time off to to think about, you know, what to do next, you know, what what is the next thing for me? Um, but, 
you know, what I'm doing on the blog, of course, is I'm revisiting the scanning right. hits from 20 years ago, you know, filtered through conditioned viewing of how is this useful for universities and, you know, the education environment 10 to 20 years out where we now are. So, I mean, but that's plugged me back into coming back to, I mean, the first paper I wrote as a futurist in a serious journal was literally 20 years ago, 2001. It was right. about reframing environmental scanning. And so revisiting that idea of, you know, the art of futures intelligence, and I use it in, in the dual sense of how do you develop intelligence about the future, but also futures intelligence in the same sense as emotional intelligence. What's, what are the intelligences you need to use to think about the future? And that developing that, the interior capacity, provides the ability to do the external work. And my colleague Peter Hayward did his PhD on, you know, the development of foresight and, and um, how that sort of grows in people's minds. And so it's interesting to find myself going back to that, my first love as a futurist, which is how do you think about the future in a disciplined and systematic way using imagination, but disciplined imagination both, you know, as Carl Sagan famously put it, you know, open-minded and skeptical, open-minded, but not so much your brains fall out and skeptical, but not so much that nothing gets in. Right. So there is that sort of that interesting in between that is the optimal uh, way of approaching this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly interested in that question, you know, how do you develop futures intelligence in the sense right. of intelligence analysis? But also in the sense of emotional intelligence, and there's a and, lot of yeah, yeah. I mean, and that 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 you know, I'm still fascinated by that. You know, I mean, and I'm sort of I'm going back to that, and that might end up being my next research project if I find a place to do it in. Um, but that that is the question because we need this interior capacity for foresight so that we can develop useful ideas. I mean, Bertrand de Juvenel called about talked about the art of conjecture. And we sort of, we project out, we create jetties into the future. Um, but that's, while that's necessary, uh, it's not sufficient. So we, we also need to be able to imagine and anticipate. And so I think futures literacy, which you've, you know, you've spoken about, that's something that everyone needs. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's good that people are starting to get serious about thinking about the future. And so futures literacy needs to become something as widespread as, you know, conventional literacy and numeracy. Not everyone's going to be an expert in it, but everyone needs to be able to use it. And it's only once this sort of capacity is widely distributed in a society that the society is likely to start moving towards social foresight, which was one of the things that was the mission of the, the old Foresight Institute, you know, of, of glorious memory. So, um, you know, the, that idea of how do you grow the capacity for foresight and then use it wisely, um, you know, that, that still drives me today. Um, that's never gone away. And I've now had a bit of time to think about that and, and where that might be uh, better directed in my personal future. And it's interesting, there's a lot of uh, foresight um, practitioners now that, you know, they practice meditation and breath work. And I, I, I've got a friend right now that's doing some shamanic journeying uh, um, uh, in South America. And 
it's, it's really fascinating because you know that that going deeper within yourself helps you really build that out and and that's really fascinating that's that's something i used to speak about a lot a few years ago was really sort of pushing those boundaries about you know you know identity in the universe and how infinitesimally small we are in the scheme of things and really being comfortable with that and uh, i remember a few years ago I, I was i was i was i was dating someone and i was staying at her apartment and it was like 5 a.m and I'd, I'd sort of got up and i was sat in a chair in the corner of the bedroom and she was like are you okay i'm like I think I've learned too much about, and it really, it was about, it was about privacy, identity, it was about surveillance, it was about surveillance capitalism. That was a particular subject. And it's like, we need to uninstall everything. You know, it's kind of like that point. And then you have to like live with it. And then you're like, you know what? This is sort of like the ocean that we swim in and there, there will be sharks. And we just need to work out what we're going to do when the sharks are circling, right? And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. But Joseph, I mean, yeah, again, we could speak <laughs> for hours and hours. It's absolutely fantastic to have this opportunity to chat to you. I mean, I feel incredibly privileged to, to have this time. Uh, I, I think this is one of my favorite podcast uh, interviews I've done. Uh, I, I follow what you do, uh, and I have been doing that for a long time. I look forward to any future writings you do, anything I can do to help you reach out. And I'd love to be able to reach out to you. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're hugely inspired like I am, go and check out Joseph's uh, writing on thevoroscope.com. Uh, is there anywhere else that people can find you as well, Joseph? Uh, that's the main place now. I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter as well, at thevoroscope, yeah. but, but I use Twitter really, I mean, I used to overuse it um, until, you know, some years ago, I decided to delete everything, and I went yeah. back to about twenty tweets that I couldn't get. Uh, I've started to using I've started using it a bit more carefully right. now, which is in the sense that uh, Cal Newport says you should use uh, digital tools. Which is, is there a clear purpose that it has? Because uh, of course, he famously has no social media, right? Uh, and you know, he, he's famous for his two books. Um, well, for several books, but the, the two main ones uh, that I remember are um, So Good They Can't Ignore You and Deep Work. And he's right. got a new one now, which is about essentially how email is broken. We should stop using email. And, and uh, you know, he's got he's got a pretty interesting podcast as well called, uh, uh, I think, now is it Deep Mind? Or it's, it's Deep Something anyway, because he's interested in deep work. And that means turning off, shutting everything down, yeah, and getting the hell away from from everything electronic, so that you can do the deep work that you then bring back to the world. It's hugely important. Um, wise words and uh, so many reference points and so much insight. Uh, Joseph, thank you. Um, be safe down there in Australia. You're a long way from where I am in in Canada, but you know we're part of a big world, but we're very small parts of a big world that we're going to continue to shake up and hopefully inspire to you know develop futures literacy so thank you very much joseph my great pleasure thanks for having me on